0: This is PolyOptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar.
1: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. PolyOptics. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It's the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, extra, extra, read all about it. The first in a series of polyoptically enlightened e-books from Politico on the 2012 campaign. Our guest, co-author of The Right Fights Back, legendary political writer, Evan Thomas. Then, advance man, Spencer E. Geisinger, former deputy assistant to the president and director of operations in advance in the George W. Bush White House, joins the conversation to discuss why getting it right means everything on the campaign trail. You know the deal. I am joined, as always, by Joshua King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Check it out if you haven't, won't you please? Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role that I played in the George W. Bush White House. And Josh, it's great to have you here.
2: It's great to be with you, Adam. Uh, You know, This is a big week, obviously, uh, in the polyoptics front. Uh, You have uh, Herman Cain continuing to descend and reassessing his race. You have uh, this ebook out about uh, the campaign by Evan Thomas and Mike Allen. We'll be talking to Evan later. Uh, we're learning more about maybe what's affecting Rick Perry's campaign. Uh, and you have Mitt Romney um, continuing to sort of make his, his sort of slow and steady pace toward Iowa, and Newt Gingrich on the ascendancy.
1: And one other thing that I wanted to spend a little bit of time, it's a bit of inside baseball and something that will mean a great deal to you and me, and I think will be remembered as a as a major turning point is the history of covering the United States of America and the presidency. Uh but network television, uh the folks who cover the White House on a day to day basis, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and CNN, they have pooled resources for uh Gosh, uh, decades upon decades trying to shoulder the cost of covering the president. Well, just this week, and in fact, I think we're breaking this news here on Polyoptics. The networks have advised the White House that they will no longer provide lighting coverage of any presidential event at the White House, Josh. That is huge.
2: I mean, what what will happen when those bins don't arrive uh, outside uh, um, Pennsylvania Avenue for check-in for every single event and and the lighting text from uh, that we got to know so well and that actually cast was such a great job, a great golden glow on the president as he walks down the cross hall toward the East Room in a presidential news conference. It's gonna this is gonna have to be taxpayer funded, Adam.
1: It will be indeed be taxpayer funded, and and as you and I both know. Uh, when it comes to spending money around the president it's really not an issue and I think having spoken and done some reporting on this that WACA is uh, going to pick this up as the first of the year but something I wanted to point out for our listeners whether you're in Washington whether you're out there across the nation listening to on POTUS you need to understand that the networks have had a solemn promise to keep in covering the presidency and keeping journalistic integrity alive And they have defended that at every turn and now that the industry is falling on hard times in my opinion they have just simply cast aside their journalistic ethics made a financial calculation by a bean counter in New York and said you know what we're just not going to do it and quite frankly this is going to be a much easier play for the White House if I put my White House on on I think How much easier is this going to be? I know we can do it right and we can do it without having to fuss with the networks But boy, I'm telling you if you're out there and you appreciate what kind of coverage comes out of Washington You need to know that the networks are taking a big step back away from the table
2: That's right. And what's next Adam? We've and we've talked about this on previous uh, episodes of Polyoptics, about the fact is that the president can do whatever he wants to do in the Oval Office, in the Rose Garden, in the East Room, but that the lenses and the microphones and the lights always belong to the news organizations. It was their responsibility to cover. What's next after they stop lighting? Will they stop shooting? Will they stop recording? Will they just yield this completely to the White House and say, give us your video, it's your show?
1: It is uh, an important element of getting the message out and covering the presidency that people who did the job that you and I have done uh, continue to do it and innovate. But when you lose a partner and you lose the kind of frontline coverage and true journalistic integrity that it takes to cover the White House, it's, it's a red-letter date and it's not necessarily a good one. Uh, but we turn now towards our first guest today, Evan Thomas, a prolific writer. And In fact, he served as an editor and writer for Time magazine from 1977 to 1986, and really served in the same role at Newsweek magazine from 1986 to 2010. He joins us today because he's part of an amazing project that he's uh, worked on with Mike Allen from Politico and John Meacham, who is editing this brand new electronic book just out this week on the 2012 race. It's called the, Re- the Right Fights Back, and we're very excited to have you, Evan Thomas, here on Polyoptics. Welcome.
0: Thanks for having me on the show.
1: I have to tell you, Josh, I read this book and emailed you immediately that my uh, take on it was that it was truly delicious. I read it through lunch and didn't even eat, and I felt completely full of wonderful political morsels. Evan Thomas, You guys have really brought a new insight to uh, covering a campaign in near real time that's just astonishing.
0: Well, the idea is to do what's been done in the past. I mean, Teddy White started this back in 1960, these campaign chronicles that are supposed to be behind-the-scenes looks. And classically, they are published after the votes are cast. I mean, Teddy White came out probably a year after. And the Newsweek books that I worked on for a long time, I did in 96, 2000, 2004, and 2008, they were published the day after the election and the deal we always made with the candidates was we won't publish anything until the votes are cast now we're trying something a little different and uh... with a you know higher degree of difficulty and that is to try to do this in real time to try to get behind the scenes backstage but do it, in this case, before the votes are cast. And we're going to do it in four installments. The the, the book just out now, Book Lit, just now. It's about 25,000 words. <clears throat> and then do it three more times. Once in the winter, uh, sort of depending on the primaries, but probably after, probably February, I would guess. Then in the summer for the political conventions. And then <clears throat> on election night, uh, we'll do the last and, and, and uh, the last wrap-up. This
1: ebook was the first one that I've ever read on a Kindle. In fact, I went out and bought a Kindle just to read it. And I know I could have done it on the web with the reader, but it was a phenomenal experience to do it. And as I started taking notes to talk to you about some of the nuggets and the reporting done, I realized that when I made the, uh, uh, the font bigger, you know, the pagination doesn't really change. You don't know what page you're on in this book, Evan. I just <laughs> yeah. knew I was getting closer to the end.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's it, it, intended to be a quick read. Uh, it's intended to be a story, you know, that you follow along and it feels like you're in a story. Uh, novelistic, if, if possible. But the, the idea is to have that behind-the-scenes feel that you really cannot get from the day-to-day, from day-to-day stories or, or the, the rush of events uh, on cable news or, or, or whatever. And uh, uh, but you have to have pretty good access to do it now. Fortunately, Mike Allen is somebody that people have to talk to. And people in the political world feel they like they got it. They don't really have a choice. You got to talk to Mike Allen. Uh, he's ubiquitous and and uh, ever present. And and so he had remarkable access. Uh, I'm the rewrite guy on this. Uh, my fingers are at the at the at the at the typewriter. Uh, I did I do uh, I, I interviewed uh, Plenty with him. Uh, but other than that, he did all the reporting. He did about, I would say, 45 hour long interviews, uh, which he sent me. You know, he would just have them typed up and sent, sent, sent right uh, to me. Uh, but fortunately, Mike, Mike gets around. And so that was our way around this inhibition that people have about talking about events before they've actually happened with Mike. You know, everybody talks to Mike. Uh, He's just a great journalist and and, and, uh, kind of of one-of-a-kind. I mean, I'm I'm not sure there is anybody like Mike Allen.
2: Evan, uh, you were talking about how you supervised the books in 96, 2000, 2004, and 2008 for Newsweek. And having traveled on many of those campaigns full-time, we always enjoyed our our relationship with the embedded newsweek yeah, reporter because right. you could trust them because everything that they reported on was embargoed until publication in the in the book that came out after the campaign and yet those campaigns are so exhausting that when the uh, when the votes are counted and the president elect is getting ready for their next term you want to go out to the bookstore and spend the money on that book but boy you sometimes feel like that story is is already done and yeah. you don't have the stomach in december and january to read it all again in this book You've adapted some of the same uh, disclosure rules, uh, ground rules about how you'll cover, uh, but you are making some conclusions before even the first votes are counted. You you and Mike write uh, about a conversation you've had with John Huntsman, and there's almost a past tense quality to the way you reflect on his campaign. Is there anything that gives you pause about reflecting on campaigns that are still, to the American public, very vibrant, and yet
0: you're almost casting... Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it does give me, and Huntsman specifically gives me pause. I mean, I think Huntsman's a good man, you know, good candidate. I think he probably has no chance in the modern Republican Party, at least the people who vote in primaries, which is why he's hanging around at 1%. So I don't think he has much of a chance in this case. I think that's too bad. Part of me hopes I'm wrong. It wouldn't be the first time I've been wrong. Uh, and it's you know who knows maybe Huntsman will steal a march in the backwoods of New Hampshire, and because uh, there is some reluctance about Romney, you know people write about this all the time, and it's there there is a uh, some unease or distaste even uh, for Romney uh, in a lot of Republican precincts. So it's not impossible somebody's going to come in out of left field and beat him. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but it's not impossible.
2: Your usual process, you say that Mike sent you uh, the interviews and you were the rewrite guy. Now, you're the author of Sea of Thunder, about the the war in the Pacific, the very best man about the CIA, John Paul Jones. You wrote the definitive book biography of of Robert Kennedy and that must have required so much research and so much presentation so many years after the action occurred that you could reflect on it and paint this Mm. very vivid picture of what was going on how do you balance those kind of projects against something that is very much so current ripped exactly from the column inches that Mike puts out versus your ability to craft a bigger picture and how does it relate to you
0: For 35 years i worked for a news magazine and i spent my friday nights at the last second putting together current events and making them sound like history so i have a lot of experience uh with this kind of writing it's it's almost second nature to me i've also written a lot of books because that was a great way to get away from the day to day and and from group journalism frankly i enjoyed having something that i could do call my own which is why i became a biographer and historian But my main job, my paid job from 1977 to 2010, was uh, as an editor, writer, and and for 10 years as Washington Bureau Chief of Newsweek. And I was forever, uh, you know, sitting there on deadline uh, dealing with in the moment.
1: One of the things that I absolutely loved about The Right Fights Back is even for folks who are just waking up, to where we are in the presidential campaign, especially the race here on the Republican side in the the primary fight, you get so much backstory. And one of the things that stood out for me, Evan, I was wondering if you could could talk about this a bit, was some of the context that I I feel like I got from the book about what's going on with Governor Perry, about uh, his culture, where he came from, Mm. but more importantly, some of the physical uh, ailments, this back surgery yeah. and the way it's impacted his debate performance. I don't think anyone should read this book and think, oh, this is an excuse. But my God, it really opened my eyes a little right. bit to what's going on behind the scenes of someone who is, for all intents and purposes, a national political neophyte. Yeah. He, he's had no real sense it would seem of what it would take to be yeah. a presidential candidate.
0: Well, one of the surprises of the campaign, maybe the biggest surprise, is how bad a candidate Perry's been. Because if you go back to Labor Day, a lot of people thought he's the guy to be Romney. I mean, he's a populist, he's attractive of Texas, he's got a great story about creating jobs. Man, he's the guy. And he flamed out, Didn't he's not out yet, I gotta be careful here. <laughs> he's He d- nosedived uh, because he did badly in the debates, but there are a couple of things going on behind the scenes here. One is he was in terrible pain for his back. He, uh, he had a back surgery, couldn't sleep, and so he just had trouble standing up. But also, he really wasn't ready. You know, there's that famous book by Richard Ben Kramer, uh, What It Takes, and you, he, if you're going to run for president, you got to be all in. And we have an interesting section there that we got from one of his fundraisers where he just wasn't, he wouldn't, you know, one thing you got to do is raise a lot of money. You just got to do it.
1: Well, you know, one of the things about that element of the book and Josh, who who spent so long in the the Clinton campaign and was part of presidential campaigns in the past, it really blew me away. The level of detail, and I hope you'll talk about it for just a second, of how uh, naive I think the governor was about what it meant to make the calls and to interface with donors who really felt Mm -hmm. like they wanted to be invested in him as a candidate and better understand what his vision for this country actually is.
0: Yeah. I mean, this to any insider, this is mind-blowing. Al Hoffman, who's a big money guy in in the Republican Party, who's really, you know, essential for Florida but also for the country. Wanted to get with Perry, as these guys do. They like to get in the plane, you know, and fly with him. And it's pretty standard procedure that if there's a big money guy like Al Hoffman, he's going on the plane with you to talk about it, to have a serious conversation. So Al Hoffman shows up with his twenty questions or whatever. And you know Perry, it's like he couldn't be bothered. He wanted to get on the plane and crack jokes and bad, you know, make silly jokes and and pray and and do anything but talk to a big time contributor. Well, goodbye, Al Hoffman. That was a uh, one of his fundraisers estimated. That's like a five million dollar loss when he really needed uh, uh, needed that cash. And it just showed a lack of seriousness that he wasn't really in the game. He wasn't willing to to play the game the way it's got to be played
2: you know you you mentioned Richard Ben Kramer's book and people could look at you in the face and lie and say I couldn't put it down but that is one fat volume and you have to put it down a couple times <laughs> before you get through it this is one book where uh, where you absolutely don't have to put it down you can finish it uh, really fast and um, and and I'm still interested in this um, again your your career as a news magazine guy who relied so much week in week out for instance at Newsweek on, but with the work of David Hume Kennerly, Wally McNamee to illustrate the stories that you were telling so that people with sort of short attention spans on a trolley or in a plane uh, could get a sense of the vibe of the story based on the photo editor's selection of what yeah. illustrates it now The Right Strikes Back is a very extended magazine, news magazine story, right. but without any of the optics that go with it. Will how do people? Uh, will people be able to get the same vibe by reading this
0: narrative? It's a fair question. Uh, one big difference is they're only paying uh, two ninety nine for it. that's you know? three dollars I spent <laughs> it's, this it's, week. It's it's less than a cup of a, a latte at Starbucks. That's so, right. Uh, it's not like they're shelling out for those beautiful pictures. I mean, it's less than a copy of Time magazine. Uh, you know, it's priced uh, appropriately because no, there aren't photographs. Hopefully, we paint a word picture right. in there, and people certainly have visual images in their head from all the TV they watch, but no, you, and one thing you can't have, uh, at least with the technology now, right. is uh, pics.
1: So, when we talk about polyoptics here, you know, on POTUS, Sirius XM 124, we're talking about stagecraft, we're talking about visual communications, and one of the things that I think gets lost sometimes is. Uh, this discipline, if you will, in a, in a macro sense, it's easy to see when it works well. But in the book, uh, The Right Fights Back, I, I, I saw something that really gave me some insight into some of the, maybe a, a microcosm of the troubles that uh, that Governor Huntsman uh, had been going through, and I think there are a lot, and they've been storied. But his wife admonishing him to stop and say hello to the people (laughs) at the front desk of the hotel. And every single person you meet is not uh, anyone else but a voter and somebody who is going to have an impression of you as a man and a candidate.
0: Well, you know, Huntsman sort of gives off the vibe. This can be good to, to not look like a politician, but Huntsman, even standing on the stage, sometimes doesn't really look like he's happy or comfortable to be there, that he's really in the game. I mean, he... He's been a successful person. He's been an ambassador, a deputy U.S. trade representative, a successful businessman, etc. So look, he's a very substantial guy. But he says uh, something about him that is not quite certainly no Bill Clinton. You know, he doesn't have that instant charisma, instant uh, ability to reach out and touch someone. And I thought it was revealing that his own wife was telling him to say hi hi to the you know the hotel clerks and bellhops where he was staying all the time. He just it just wasn't natural for him. You know, I don't think he really has that gift.
2: Speaking about wives,
0: you and Mike paint a
2: very interesting pl- uh, picture of the relationship between Newt and Callista Yes. And one of the things uh, that Newt pointed out in his conversation with you that Callista is great on the visuals. and i I was struggling to think, <sighs> Newt Gingrich and visuals there hasn't been a good one since the contract of
0: America mo- contract <laughs> the of America well, well
1: pointed out John
0: <laughs> that is that's funny I had not made that connection that's a, that is a good point uh, Newt you just looking at Newt you can tell he's bad at visuals I think what that means is he really only trusts Callista Newt in this. Newt is making a run now, and maybe it'll work, but uh, we quote one guy saying that he couldn't, uh, run, he would screw up a two-car That'd funeral. That'd be Haley Barber. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, I just don't think Newt's famous for his management skills here, uh, and, and his his own campaign blew up in the summer with 20 of his aides basically walked off the job, and he was thrown back on Callista and a couple others, and, uh, you know, he's very tight with her. He compares her to Nancy Reagan, Her his closeness, which is sort of an interesting uh, metaphor, actually. Uh, that Calista is, is Nancy Reagan. Uh, But he's been running all the sort of seat of the pants now. Only now is he setting up shop in Iowa to try to do the traditional on-the-ground stuff. Uh, You know, maybe you can run for president from a TV studio, but it hasn't been done yet.
1: You know, one of the, the most interesting elements, as we've covered here on POTUS, and we've talked about it here on Polyoptics before, are these presidential debates. And there's something that is... Uh, renewed here in these debates. There have been so many of them. They've taken on uh, a different uh, importance in the popular culture. It's, it's sort of yeah. feeding this horse race narrative. But in the book, you bring us really down to the the nub of what ended the Tim Pawlenty candidacy? <laughs> yeah. uh, a missed opportunity. Take us back through that. Share with folks. We talked yeah. about polyoptics. He'd been on a Sunday show the, 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 the few days before and it hit Romney hard and then failed to follow up. Yeah.
0: Well, a lot of people thought Pawlenty had a chance here. I mean, a, a Midwestern governor, he was in pretty good with the right. Nice guy, Minnesota nice. And, and I know the Romney campaign feared him. But he blew it early. Uh, he did set up a, uh, you know, set up on one of these talk shows an attack on, on, on Romney, compa- comparing Romney Care uh, with Obamacare and calling it uh, 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 Obamacare, Ob- care. So he had it all teed up. The debate comes along, and John King practically begs him to, 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 to do this, and he won't do it. And we interviewed uh, plenty, actually, in my, my dining room table, uh, and got plenty to relive this and it's hilarious reading in the book because he got his feet all tangled up in his head he's been you know coach these guys always get coached by the consultant swing thoughts like a golfer like a duffer golfer he's talking about his three point swing thought and he just got his feet so tangled up that he couldn't swing uh, as a lot of bad golfers including me can attest to if you think too much it's a disaster but the as we also say the, 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 the person that he didn't talk about was his own wife his wife didn't want him to do it She's nice, too, and she just didn't want him to go after Romney. They like Romney. And that, basically, deep down, I think Tim Pawlenty's niceness, this is a too, maybe too strong a statement, but disqualified him from being president. He's just too nice to be president.
1: Hey, Josh, yeah. you know, when, when, when Evan talks about that moment, it makes me think about the part in the book where the discussion turns to President Obama. And his distaste for some of the hardball attacking politics that uh, folks in the White House had set him out to do earlier this year, which he pulled up short on. Did you do you, yes. you see a nexus there, Josh? I don't know, Evan, if that resonates with you. But there's a distastefulness for it on the part of the president that uh, seems to mirror a bit in in Palanti. Yeah.
0: I think this is a fascinating question, because on the one hand, you would think the public, with his disdain for politicians and nasty gotcha politics, would welcome a guy who doesn't like it, who's just like them, you know, is is put off by mean politics. And so they would appreciate a Polanyi. But on the other hand, people do expect politicians to go for it and to not shy away and to be sort of comfortable in the arena. And it was as if Tim Polanyi wasn't comfortable... In the arena, he wasn't willing to to not just take a shot, but he just didn't seem quite. When he when he when he started to get mad, his advisors would tell him get mad, you know, and it, it seemed false. It seemed tinny, like he was he was showing anger that he didn't really feel. So it came across as being false. Now Obama has a related problem, a little different. Tim Pawlenty's a very warm guy. Obama is more aloof. I mean, he just is. He's more of a loner. Uh, he's he's you know, I mean. As I think about it, not since Richard Nixon has there been a president who was quite so al- alone, fundamentally alone, alone in his heart. Uh, he's a good family guy, and I think he's you know happily married and all that. But his, he, he I also I thought it interesting in Martha's Vineyard in the summers when when Clinton was there, the place would come to a standstill. You couldn't move around. He's always in the every you know, hour out to another party, every and ever or the ice cream store. I mean, the island just ground to a Obama leaves no footprint at all. It's like he's not there, because he's not going out. He doesn't want to go out and schmooze with people at the agricultural fair or the ice cream store. He wants to play golf with his two or three buddies, and that is it.
2: Uh Now, when you put out an e-book with Mike Allen, uh, and you do it over a relatively short period, a guy like Evan Thomas has to have a day job, and you teach journalism at Princeton University, and you're also, as we said, the author of of so many uh, wonderful books of history. So put your historian hat back on, bring us back to Princeton, and tell us what... The campaign of Robert Kennedy would think, as they look at the process that's playing out in 2011, and compare it to 1968.
0: Well, there was a lot less uh, uh, instant TV in those days, and or debates. I mean, Bobby did not like debates. Bobby was not a very good debater. He debated uh, McCarthy uh, in California and pretty much lost the debate. Uh, Kennedy was very good giving a, a, a set speech and, and being in crowds. He was great at that, because, for the very reason that—this is a little complicated— he seemed vulnerable, and so poor people and black people, and they sensed—although he was royalty, he was a Kennedy, and he was spouting these beautiful words written mostly by others— there was something vulnerable and that people sensed that he could feel their pain. And on a campaign trail, he just radiated this. But he wasn't all that great on TV he was a little too hot for the cool medium uh he would get his, he wasn't all that articulate uh he would not have i don't think he would have been a good debater he would have gotten frustrated and petulant and childish and gotten mad at everybody else uh I, I, i'm just thinking of his his one debate with mccarthy he was not not good and i i don't think that the current system would have been kind to him
1: you know i uh Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us here on Polyoptics today, Evan. Obviously, the reporting goes forward. We have more installments from you and Mike and your team to come. And for a kid who grew up in a small corner of northwest Washington on a street that was claimed home to a Supreme Court justice, a federal court judge named Robert Bork, there was a magazine writer up the street who I admired greatly. And uh, it's great to have you here today.
0: Thank you. I I was, as Adam pointed out earlier, I was the guy who told him to slow down when he went speeding by. I'm driving a lot slower these days. Uh, George Bush lived on that street, George Bush lived in the house
1: that I grew up in.
0: All right. Oh, yeah. of course I knew that yeah Yeah.
1: so that's a a story for another Polyoptics Josh Evan be well thanks thanks Evan Josh I haven't had so much fun in a political week uh, in so long, but reading this book because, uh, like we've spoken to Mark Halpern and John Heilman and we've spoken glowingly about Richard Van Kramer's book What It Takes, this is an insight in a background to what goes on on the trail that I think people who listen to this show are dying to read
2: yeah I mean you talked about this you're reading it on a Kindle I read it on an iPad last night the pages are beautifully laid out just like a book and yet the interviews that they talk about happened in late October in mid-november i mean we're getting it fresh off the microphone of mike allen and evan thomas so it's like uh it really is a new kind of campaign reporting a new kind of reading experience for people like you and me
1: we're gonna take a right turn here uh towards a, a close friend of mine a mentor of mine at the white house our next guest spencer e geisinger was director of operation in advance in the Bush White House and uh really played a very similar role in many respects uh to the job that Josh and I had done and, and our colleagues in our respective times in the White House. And Spencer, uh welcome to polyoptics, my friend.
3: Great to be here, marks Nice to hear your voice. Uh
1: you know, Josh uh when when I came into the White House uh and was looking for guidance on not only how to do the job, but you know knowing what the right protocol was Uh, Spencer was there for me. He has a great deal of experience going back uh, deep in in Republican administrations, but one of the things I love to tell people about you, Spencer, is that when you work in the White House, when you do a a job like the one that you had or or the one that Josh had, uh, you are also a bit of a diplomat. You find yourselves on pre-advances representing the President of the United States of America, and you are Representing the White House with foreign nations and really bringing a conversation together that will ultimately uh, bring the President of the United States to another country and and spreading uh, some of uh, the American values to the rest of the world. How amazing uh, has it been for you to sit back finally and watch someone else take on those kind of responsibilities?
3: It's uh, you know, I've been to ninety seven countries. Uh, around the world, uh, I started working for President Reagan, I worked on his re-election campaign in 1984, and, uh, and just continued on, and I worked for President Bush 41, and then obviously uh, President Bush 43, but traveling around the world uh, has been the greatest experience and the greatest education of my life, and I think you guys no doubt. Would, would say the same thing. I mean, the, the experiences that we've been part of, you know, representing the American people, and our president around the world is is a fascinating thing, and it's it's been a great education for me. And it's really, you know, I've grown so much as a human being just by, you know, meeting people from other countries and negotiating on behalf of the United States and our president uh, when he travels. So it's, you know, the experiences are, you, you, you can never read them in a book. You could never learn them, you know, in college. They're actual real-time Uh, Events and and experiences that are that are life, you know last a lifetime
2: Yeah, I mean growing up where you grew up and where I grew up and where Adam grew up I mean you're lucky if life offers you an opportunity to you know see London or see Paris or maybe see Los Angeles Uh, but when you happen to discover this world of advance as you did in 1984 for the reelection of President Reagan and probably brought you to summits with Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, and the and the events before during and after 9-11 and even and even going forward that the the notion of the US government being being entrusting you with a diplomatic passport And a plane ticket to very exotic places that Americans rarely get to see is one of the great privileges of doing of starting in politics and moving into government, isn't it?
3: No, no doubt about it. And, you know, when I first started doing pre advances years and years ago, uh, we would take a U.S. Air Force plane that said the United States of America on the side of it, you know, and we would land in these foreign places and and be greeted, uh, you know, with the with the high protocol staff and they would take us on walkthroughs and we'd visit venues and you know the first time i went to to russia it was still the soviet union that's right and uh you know it was uh, everything was gray and dark and there was no no chanel (laughs) stores and no no bmw cars and and you know everything looked the same and it was gloomy and dark and and now you travel there and it's you know it's a bustling economy and and so i've seen the world change so much in this job and, you know, I, I was watching this morning uh, on TV President Bush in Tanzania. And uh, I had the good fortune of doing the pre-advance for his last, his last trip to Africa when he was president. Uh, I think you were with me, Belmar, on oh, that. Oh, you but, know
1: I was with you, Spencer. And
3: uh, we, you know, it was just great to see him back in Tanzania. They love him in Africa. And, uh, you know, he did such great things for the for the African people uh,
1: with PEPFAR and... and uh, you know, World AIDS Day was uh, was this week, and uh, you know there are many things that. That, that stay the same between administrations and we tend to focus on uh, the uh, dissimilarities but uh, President Obama has a, a, I think a very strong uh, legacy building on uh, reaching out and, 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 and keeping going on PEPFAR the President's uh, Emergency Relief Fund for, for AIDS and uh, these things Josh that you've pointed out, the things in some of the, the traditions that you started in the Clinton administration that we kept going on That's true in one
2: sense, Adam. But I just picked up on the things that Michael Deaver and Reagan staff started to do. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, Reagan obviously was, and Deaver uh, defined the modern presidency from a visual standpoint, defined what you could do with taking Air Force One to a remote location. Maybe with the uh, the exception of what Richard Nixon did with China and what uh, John F. Kennedy did with bringing Jackie to Paris, but the notion of uh, of Reagan. Uh, sitting with Gorbachev out in that uh, uh, fireplace-lined mansion in Geneva, and having their first summit, what George Bush 41 did with uh, with Gorbachev um, in the Maxim Gorky uh, off the coast of Malta. I mean, this was high stakes. Diplomacy that people like Spencer, you, and me were able to facilitate, and uh, and it just went on from there.
1: Spence, talk for a second about the mission that you undertook, um, and I don't want to talk about some of the secret trips to uh, to Iraq, but but I want to have you talk about. What I think was a very important international statement, uh, and ultimately I think a very successful trip for President Bush, in going to China for the Olympics. Uh, This was something that took an enormous amount of coordination and face-to-face meetings, and the person who represented the United States of America in getting this together was you.
3: Well, it was, uh, I made three trips to China to negotiate with the Chinese everything from how many cars we could have in the motorcade to how many credentials we had to how many tickets we had uh, uh, at for each venue you know and this was President Bush got personally involved more I think in this trip than any other trip I ever worked on he he this was going to be sort of his last big international trip Uh, he was really looking forward he's a sports nut as we all know and so he was really looking forward uh, to going and he wanted to take, you know, some of his closest friends and family on on this trip. And so we made three trips over to sort of negotiate. And as any of you know, and Josh, you know, negotiating with the Chinese is a challenge. And they will agree, you. they'll put you in a room, and you'll have meetings that go on for hours, and it'll be hot, and they smoke cigarettes, and... and <laughs> they put they you basi- in a smoke box, <laughs> yeah. too. and they basically wear you down. And so all throughout these uh, pre-advanced trips... And survey trips we would negotiate on how many credentials we would get or you know how many hotel rooms we could have or whatever and they would always tell you that you'll get whatever you need and whatever well i can tell you on the day that we left andrews air force base on air force one bound for china beijing we had not one credential we had not one ticket to any event um they completely fell through Uh, in, in delivering what they said they were gonna deliver. So I just told the president, I said, sir, I said, we'll go whatever, you just tell me which events you wanna go to and we will just load up the motorcade and go. And I said, they're not gonna stop us. They're not gonna stop you. If you want to go to the swimming, we'll go to the swimming. If you and so, but I, we, we had also
1: our... had a pretty robust schedule of events. It wasn't yeah. just to attend the Olympics, because creating and building out a substantive and in this trip, uh, I think it's important, note because Josh, you've done this too. It's it's also the lead up to the trip because we came through Thailand. There yep. was some tough talk uh, uh, while we were in Asia uh, before ever. Uh, Air Force One was wheels down in Beijing and every element of this trip leading up to the the ultimately celebrating along with the rest of the world China's ascendancy the ability to see the world gathered there which was something I think the president really supported even though he had giant uh, issues on the human rights front he wasn't going to disenfranchise the American athletes so he stood strong on those issues but you know even creating uh, a, a reasonably successful trip for a president in a country where there was no cooperation uh, is not uncommon uh, for, for a director of operations in advance in the White House. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's true.
3: You know, and, and, and he wanted to, you know, he wanted to do, uh, like he wanted to ride his bike, his mountain bike on the Olympic course. Well, that, when, when I told the Chinese <laughs> that, you know, they looked at me like I was crazy. He wants to do what? And I said, well, I said, he's a mountain bike rider and he really wants to ride the course. And I said we won't take any press out there. It'll be p- private. Uh, he, he'll ride with a couple of friends and his mill aides. Uh, and you remember Navy Bob? He took a spill on that. You remember he crashed?
1: Yeah. Uh, this this is a friend of ours who is now commanding a nuclear submarine. Yeah. The uh, USS Texas, by was the way. The he, he, was he the Navy aide, he was the Navy mill aide.
3: Yeah, he was the Navy mill aide, and we called him Navy Bob. And he uh, he crashed and busted his chin open so bad that had a bunch of stitches and whatever. But so that was one thing that sort of a curveball with through the Chinese, then the president wanted, we wanted to have a baseball game. We wanted, I had worked it out with the U.S. Olympic team that the U.S. baseball team, U.S. Olympic team uh, would play, uh, we would do sort of a, a, a scrimmage game or a, you know, a practice game. And, and, and the Olympic committee told me, uh, absolutely not. You, you're not going to come over here, and so we just—I remember it. this. We organized it anyways, and got the chain. We played the Chinese team, and it was a, uh, and it was a lot of fun, and it was a huge The success. Chinese
1: that was—they were all about
3: that. Yeah, the Chinese wanted to do it. They thought it was great. The world, the uh, International Olympic Committee didn't want to have anything to do with it, and told us no. And so we just sort of rolled them and did it anyways.
1: And you know, Josh, was, you've been to Beijing?
2: Yes, I did. I, I t- took President Clinton there in 1998. Uh, Forbidden City, Great Wall, uh, and all the stops in between. We w- went to Beijing University. Uh, and uh, it was, I think, just like President Bush's trip, it was one of the last great places that President Clinton had not yet been when he finally went to Beijing. In, I nearly in, in, in had a heart attack
1: in the Forbidden City. Spencer led me on like a Batan death march. Too... we did we oh, god
3: <laughs> we walked all over that place but you know the thing is uh, that's it, it, fascinating with the with the chinese is you'll go there on these survey trips and advance trips and the city will look one way and then when you come back and I, they the, the they did a remarkable job getting that city ready for the olympics and and clearing the air the air pollution and and uh, uh, planting flowers everywhere i mean they cleaned the place up it was it was quite a feat. But Well,
1: let's turn the page because okay. uh, politics is in your blood, Spencer, and you are a known commo- uh, a commodity in the Republican world of advance. And those kind of things don't go away. Those skill sets need to be applied. Uh, and, and you, since you've left the White House, have really been politically active. You spent some time, our listeners should know, uh, working on the campaign of now Governor Scott of Florida. But you also were involved... In the 2012 presidential race, uh, you were advising and working with Governor Huntsman. Talk to us about that. Obviously, you're no longer with that campaign. Um, I want you to share some insights, but tell us what you were doing and, and, and how that ended.
3: Well, um, Susie
1: Wiles
3: uh, was the campaign manager for Rick Scott for governor. And so I worked for Susie uh, and Lanny uh, Wiles uh, on the governor's race. And then when we won, I helped I ran the inauguration and then uh, for Governor Scott and then he asked me to come into the governor's office and set up the external affairs office for him and which I did and then uh, Susie was tapped to uh, by Huntsman by Governor Huntsman to service is her as, as the campaign manager to start out and so Susie asked me to come on board the Huntsman campaign and, and get the operations side of the house scheduling in advance and and sort of the admin side of it, get that up and running and so i I joined the campaign uh, i I like Governor uh, huntsman a lot. I love his family uh, he's a he's a decent guy and and he's got a great family. It just didn't work for me uh, the structure of the campaign. I was deputy campaign manager for operations and uh, and it was i had issues with the strategist and it just didn't it wasn't a good fit for me and so i ended up taking leave of the campaign and and uh, you know it was fun to get one started at the at the ground level you know i we met with him as soon as he got back from china and uh, sort of met in his house and laid out how we were going to move forward with the campaign and and uh worked on the announcement swing and all that and unfortunately i had left right i don't know fortunately or unfortunately i had left uh, the campaign before the announcement swing and you know the announcement. You didn't
2: want to be at Newark Airport no. that afternoon.
3: That started off awful rocky, and uh, you know it was just it was sad that the, you know that his big day and his kickoff of his campaign went so wrong. But you know that's what advance is, and that you know, and and it just wasn't done correctly. And
2: what happened that day? And do you think? I remember Andrea Mitchell's package that she put together that day, and the way the bloggers sort of piled on. As an advanced person, I found all that terribly unfair that, uh, you know, we advanced people... The Buses will often take a left turn when they ought to go right, right. and you fix that problem, and eventually you yeah. get to Manchester. Exactly. But it seemed like that was a big pile-on for the usual kind of snafus that happened.
3: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was... There was stuff that happened that didn't even get in the news, but... It uh it was it was really the perfect storm. It started out, uh, you know, I did the site survey of the of the positioning of where the stage was gonna be to get the to get the Statue of Liberty in the backdrop. And then by the time that, you know, the rolled the event day rolled around and the stages were built, the you know, it didn't get the stage wasn't positioned in the right spot to have the, the Statue of Liberty in the backdrop over his shoulder. Um, you know, and I don't wanna point fingers at who who made the mistakes, but but that was the first problem. The second problem is the generator went out, and they didn't have a backup generator, so there was no redundancy, and you're out on the tip of this point with you know with the wind blowing, and, and so there was so the power went out. I'm you know that's that was the second thing that happened. Then the third thing that happened, they printed they misspelled his name on the press credentials, uh, and still handed him out anyway. How that in was, the hell does that happen? Uh, it's unbelievable. I mean. Uh, you would think that somebody would look at them and say this name is spelled wrong and don't hand them out, but they went ahead and handed them out, and that created another story. Because and then, all
2: they really are at that point is souvenirs. Yeah. I mean, there's not real security that happens. No, yeah, that they're point. souvenirs.
3: And uh, and then and then uh, the campaign had contracted with a with a charter service to provide a seven thirty seven, but they didn't get the crew there in time. The crew was coming in from some other on some other flight from some other airport, and they didn't get there in time, and so. And then, and then, the, you know, obviously everybody knows the story. When the buses were going from the speech venue out to the airport, you know, there was no escort, and the buses went to the King of Saudi Arabia's plane or something. And it was, it was, uh, it was the perfect storm. And
1: well, as it, a metaphor for a campaign that uh, has foundered without the kind of execution, if not organization, that one would need, uh, it, it it is exactly what we have tried so hard in our careers. To fight against, to prepare for these things, and make sure that the follow-through is there. Yeah, you 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 know,
3: we all are uh, pay particular attention to detail. Our jobs are detail-oriented, down to the. I mean, we probably over-focus on details sometimes to the point, you know, that it's you know, at nauseum. But but that's how we prevent making mistakes. Is 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 really focusing on the details in advance and logistics and coordination and. And that day, that particular day, unfortunately for Governor Huntsman.
2: And, and Spencer, uh, we just finished talking with uh, Evan Thomas, who with Mike Allen has published this ebook called The, the Right Fights Back. And, and they are publishing before even the first votes are cast in Iowa. But they're providing a lot of these behind-the-scenes analysis of how campaigns either hit a good stride or, or hit a bump. And one of the things they really point out was that while Huntsman... Governor Huntsman looked so good on paper, especially to a guy like me. Democrat, somewhat moderate, maybe sort of with my wife... uh, uh open-minded to a Republican candidate in the next campaign, especially one who I think could sort of straddle the fence between Democrat and Republican, Huntsman looked pretty good. And we talked to Mark Halpern and John Heilman, who had followed Huntsman in, in initial forays into New Hampshire before the announcement, and said, this guy really does connect with these voters. Uh, but as as Mike Allen and uh, and Evan Thomas point out, John Weaver was sort of seen as maybe too brash or too much drama within the campaign for a guy who's much more modest and sedate like governor huntsman the, the chemistry didn't mix and as i'm talking to you now and i'm i'm and you know the respect that i have for president reagan and first president bush and any person who is associated with that kind of a production quality i wonder if the chemistry was right for huntsman and a guy like weaver
3: i personally it wasn't and that's and you're seeing the results of that um i you know i i when I first joined the campaign I tried to you know to make it a a I wouldn't say a presidential operation but I wanted it to be buttoned up because I've been on winning campaigns I know I've been on three I know what it takes to win the presidency and you ha- you can make zero mistakes and so when I first started setting up the operations of how we were going to do it I was shot down and said, you know, this is too presidential, and we're not doing this. We're going to grow this campaign organically. Is what I was told by him, and you know, it it, it 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 was, in my opinion, was the the beginning of the downfall. I mean, you, if you're going to stake your election, your chance to win the presidency, on one state, and you're going to spend all your time there, and you're going to spend all your money there, you better get more than eight eight or nine percent of the vote. I mean, and that's where he he spent a ton of money there. He's been there more than any other candidate, and he's not even going to get a sniff of it. Now, that ought to tell you something. Uh, You know, the other thing is, if you look at the the talent that started out with Governor Huntsman on his campaign, we had some very talented people accomplished in campaigns, winners. People had, had won campaigns, and they're all gone. And there's one guy left. And that ought to tell you something, too, that you have all all these talented people who've been on winning presidential campaigns that know how to get to the White House and they've all left and the guy who's never been able to accomplish that who's been terminated from campaigns is still there and you know it's 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 sad because I really thought I really thought Governor Huntsman had a good shot and it just came unraveled very quickly
1: you know as we finish up this uh, this conversation with Spencer Geisinger former uh, Director of Operations in Advance in the White House, Deputy Assistant to the President of the United States. Uh, I just want to share a, a quick anecdote, Josh. Uh, towards the end of the presidency, uh, we uh, had the Pope uh, come to visit, and this was something that happened on the 18 Acres. And uh, our Deputy Chief of Staff, uh, a man to whom uh, Spencer reported, and, and I was really very lucky uh, to be able to call a friend and learn a lot from him, Joe Hagan, realized that this was going to be an all-hands-on-deck effort. It was beyond the ken almost of of everyone there, how uh, flawless this needed to be and how well-coordinated it needed to be to receive uh, the pontiff uh, at the White House. And so Spencer was tasked with really coming in and, uh, and leading the charge, usually when there was a crisis, when we had an ad hoc summit uh, of world leaders around the financial crisis in 2008. The president personally asked Spence Geisinger uh, to take the lead. But, but, Spencer, talk just for a brief second, if you would, about what it was to create uh, the reception uh, of the, the Holy Father uh, at the White House.
3: Well, it was a, it was a complete... Uh, Honor number one. And, you know, I'm going to digress just for a minute. There are people in the world who, when they walk into a room, are larger than life. They have a glow about them. And I've noticed this in my career. Mikhail Gorbachev had it. When he walked into a room, he was bigger than life. Bill Clinton, President Clinton had that. Um, Mandela. uh, Mandela had it. Uh, uh, The Pope has it. And so, first of all, I get goosebumps when I think back about it, you know, I remember when I saw Pope John Paul the first time, I mean, it was just, he glowed, it was, he was larger than life, it was amazing. But to be asked to put on, you know, a, an arrival ceremony at the White House for the Holy Father, uh, you know, and, and, and how he affects so many people around the world that it had to be flawless it had to be perfect it had to you know it had to be an experience of a lifetime for everybody that set foot on the 18 acres that day to watch uh and to hear him and to, and to see him and uh, so it was you know it was it was a great experience um it you, you I you know and you probably did the same thing Josh and, and I know Adam you probably did too anytime you're at these big events I always would go after we sort of got the president on the stage and the event was sort of unfolding, I would always try and walk around to the back of the event and absolutely, just, and just watch people absolutely. and just stand and hear what they say. And, you know, President Bush probably wasn't the best president on camera, on TV. He just didn't, he didn't come across good. Um, but Adam knows him and I know him and we know what a great person he is. And I would oftentimes go, when we were at a rally in some state or whatever or he was giving a speech or whatever. I would go stand in the crowd and I would hear what people would say. I would just listen and they'd say, man, he is so much better in person. You know, I like him so much better now that I've seen him and heard him and, you know, and and sort of witnessed him, you know, in in person as opposed to how he comes across on TV. And if I heard that once, I heard it a thousand times. And so TV and, and imagery and stagecraft and all that play such a huge part in the American presidency.
2: So much of what we're talking about success or failure of an event has to do with venue selection, stage height, lighting, sound, all of these elements that as the crowd begins to trickle in inside the bike racks and they look at how you've what you've imagined as your setting and how you've prepared it for the President of the United States and the assembled guests to come up on stage and to say what they're going to say, you can almost assure a good event before it even begins if you've come to it with that level of perfectionism and detail and love of design and uh, and production and that's what's I think so darn frustrating for Adam and me and I think I hear it from you too Spencer about the way these primary campaigns uh, are going because as you read Mike Allen and Evan Thomas's book all I feel Adam is just a sense of sloppiness that let's just get to Iowa get in front of a camera and do something and as I've talked to Spencer I see that there is this Reagan esque quality to the way he would present a candidate that doesn't surprise me at all that none of the candidates uh, on the GOP side so far have established any sort of presidential cred in the way that they are performing on stage
3: boggles the mind I mean you're you if you're going to run for president you need to play the role during the campaign that you can be the president you need to look presidential you need to convince the American people that you can sit in the Oval Office and do the job and I don't I mean short of maybe Mitt Romney I don't really see that out of any of the candidates I don't it's just it's there's too much too many debates too much you know there's I, I'll tell you a quick story. in when George Bush was uh, Herbert Walker Bush, President Bush 41, when he was running for president in 1988, we got slaughtered in Iowa. We came in third place. Bob Dole won, Pat Robertson came in second, and we came in third. And we were supposed, to, you know, I mean we were the front runner. We were you know, it darn near uh, derailed his president his opportunity to be president. We launched teams immediately when we lost the Iowa caucus we we launched teams to New Hampshire and I mean it was the gloves came off we the uh, Andy Card who was the deputy chief of staff at the time and, and Craig Fuller who was the the vice president chief of staff and Lee Atwater they basically said came to the advance people came to us and said do whatever it is you need to do in New Hampshire to help us win this the vice president will do anything we will go anywhere do anything we need to take the gloves off and really and we we i mean we went to every dog sled race every diner he drove a s- snow plow he uh, i mean we went to
2: Lake Winnipesaukee yeah, Laconia yeah, i remember it yeah, yeah
3: and and you know and that and we were able to win New Hampshire and go on and win South Carolina and and Super Tuesday and you know and he won the presidency but You know, people never should underestimate the value that advance and logistics and coordination brings and and stagecraft and imagery.
1: Yeah, Spence Geisinger, uh, a debt of gratitude to you uh, for for joining us on Polyoptics and sharing some of your insights and things you've done. Uh, Appreciate everybody uh, who joined us for this uh, episode of Polyoptics. We will be back next week, only on Post.